This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Vlad Eisengrim, a.k.a. Scott McClellan from Carnival Diablo, Canada's oldest, longest-running circus sideshow, traveling circus sideshow, under the uh, the big top, and it's uh, coming to a town near you. You can go to carnivaldiablo.com and uh, he is also uh, the man behind the Paranormal Show, the theparanormalshow.net. And uh, that tour is around as well, and it is coming to Occulticon 2019 up in Holstein, Ontario, in Gray County, September the 14th, Saturday, September the 14th, occulticon.com for tickets and information. And uh, we should also mention, of course, Diablo Manor. Uh, dot com, where you can go uh, for a wonderful, uh, well, first you'll tour the manor and see all of these things, uh, the uh, the hand of glory, the the bones of the elephant man. Do you still have um, the two-headed calf? I do. That's actually my grandfather's very first freak that he ever showed. Ah. He, uh, under, under a uh, 10 foot by 10 foot black tent back in 1920, he only had one thing, and that was this wonderful two-headed calf that he had purchased from a museum in Peoria, Illinois. And, uh, basically, he built his carnival from the sales he made off of showing that two-headed calf. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, oh, so we have to talk about, I, I hope you don't get tired of telling this story, Scott. It's one of my favorites. Not at all. You have, uh, quite a, is this, I mean, is this the one attraction that people ask you the most about, Waldo? Yes, it's, it's my most famous attraction. Uh, uh, basically, uh, Waldo is a ventriloquist dummy that has a rather nefarious history. Uh, a very famous, uh, vaudeville entertainer named Harry Tomaney, um, had gotten finally after years and years of working towards it, uh, a big contract on the Lyceum circuit. Now the Lyceum circuit is kind of like getting to do Broadway on the road. It's, it's, it's a, it's the big one. It's the big, it's the big ticket. And, um, he had decided to get a new ventriloquist dummy. He was a ventriloquist. He decided to get a new ventriloquist dummy made for that tour. And um, he commissioned the same gentleman that had made the dummy for uh, Edgar Bergen, which was Charlie McCarthy. Right, right. Uh, and and uh, so we know for a fact, just to you know say this right off the top, that the carver of the dummy was not an evil person, did not do anything uh, bad or, or, or horrible in creating this dummy. Something else must have happened to it along the way. Um, that being said, uh, basically, uh, on his first night on the, uh, on the, on the circuit, uh, he was backstage, and they uh, came to knock on the door, and they were like, five minutes, Mr. Tomaney, five minutes. And he didn't answer, but that was okay, because he was probably just doing his makeup. But then they made another call, uh, Mr. Tomaney, you're on. Mr. Tomaney, Mr. Tomaney, you're on. He didn't answer the door. They broke down the door and they found him on the on the ground, dead. The coroner's report stated that the fist marks on his body 
were the size of a three-year-old child's fists. He was beaten to death. His dummy was then left to um, his daughter, who was about to be married that next year. Sadly, her and her soon-to-be husband died in a house fire, and one of the only things taken from the fire intact was the dummy. Which is made out of wood. (laughs) Which is made out of wood. Now the dummy was um, placed in the care of a vaudeville museum in the the 1950s, because vaudeville had finally um, gone the way of the dodo, and TV was now king. And so uh, this vaudeville museum showed it for seven years, and um, after showing it for seven years, the vaudeville museum exploded in a large gas fire, killing seven people. And uh, the only thing taken from the rubble, once again, Hmm. intact, was the dummy. Wow. And so now uh, the dummy was uh, basically placed uh, into the state with the the American government. Now, if you remember the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's that point where the janitor is moving the uh, ark in a crate into a great big warehouse of crates right. where it gets lost forever. Well, there is a place much like that in reality. And basically, that's where Waldo uh, sat uh, in, a, in a box uh, up until 1984, whereas um, I caught wind. This was by my very first acquisition. I caught wind through my grandfather that they were doing an auction. And um, I, I went to the auction because I had heard about the story of the dummy, and I bid highest, and I won Waldo as a um, a, as my first artifact. Now, when I put him on show originally in the Carnival Diablo, I chained him to a trunk filled with 400 pounds of lead shot, and that was for the public safety and mine. And I was always curious as to what made this thing kill everybody that ever owned it. Right. I mean, we should point uh, out, what's the body count now? So there's the Harry well, Tomei, the original Harry ventriloquist. Tomei, uh, his, his, his daughter and her soon-to-be husband. So there's two of them that died. And then there were seven people that died after that. That's so, ten. Um, seven, eight, nine, well, that's ten people. Wow. And what does he look yeah. like? Well, uh, the interesting thing about Waldo is um, you can take his wig off, and in the back of his head, if you open it up and look inside, it's almost like looking at a Swiss clock. There's over 200 uh, working parts, and uh, he's got like two winkers. His eyes go back and forth. His mouth, of course, goes um, up and down. But the most intriguing thing about him is the fact that uh, he has a mechanical handshaker, which is really weird. Um, So he can actually shake your hand. Oh, wow. And doesn't he have human teeth? Yes, thank you for uh, bringing that up. Strangely enough, somebody over the years has taken out the little tiny strip of white wood that would have represented teeth on a ventriloquist dummy and replaced that with children's teeth. Oh, my God, that's eerie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had um, an epiphany. I thought to myself, I've got to figure out how, the, how and why this thing is the way it is. So I invited a psychic out to the original Carnival Diablo play, uh, space in 1992. And I didn't tell him what the problem was with any of my objects. I just said, there's something here that really bothers me. And he went walking straight to the Waldo exhibit and pointed at it and said, is this the problem? And I said, yeah, it is. And I said, can you tell me anything about it from what you're feeling? And he said to me that the ventriloquist dummy is made of bad wood. And I said, well, what's bad wood? I don't get it. And he said, basically, I believe that this dummy was carved from a hangman's tree. 
<laughs> wow. And uh, yeah. and then what is your theory that it's possessed by every ghost that was ever hanged? It, for, from every person uh, that was ever hanged uh, on that tree, uh, now that spirit, that angry spirit, is is within the wood. And so if there was 15 people that had been hung uh, on that tree, then there's 15 angry spirits within the wood trapped there. And now they have a way, a way and a means to move thanks to this puppet-like body of uh, Waldo. Have you ever seen and it move on its own? Personally, I have not, but I can remember when we had it on show at the old space in Calgary, Alberta. Um, I was doing my books one night when there was a sonic boom in the building, and these two guys came running from the back, and they were like, is that supposed to happen? Is that supposed to happen? And I said, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? He, they, they said, you got to follow us and just see this. So I went back uh, to where the exhibit was, and there was around 65 people standing around the uh, perimeter of the exhibit. And um, I said, what happened here? Because all of the other exhibits were on the ground. And they said, basically, what they had seen is the trunk that Waldo was chained to, which was filled with 400 pounds of lead shot, levitated around three and a half feet off the ground and then came down full force, jarring everything off of the other tables in its vicinity. So he was trying to get out. Um, and uh, that that was one of the big ones. I've been told by many people that he's actually followed them, like his head's actually turned, and he's and he's followed them as they walked down uh, the aisle when he was on show in the World of Wonders when I had him uh, on tour. Wow! And again, there's nothing mechanical about this thing. It has to be manually worked. This is a ventriloquist dummy, not a robot. So it's like uh, all these things are really kind of disheartening. <laughs> but I have them right now uh, chained and bolted to a um, uh, a shelf unit here in the Diablo Manor. And he's also hogtied. And uh, he is one of the exhibits that people can see when they're here. He's hogtied. Have you ever, I mean, would you ever untie him and, and, and use him like a ventriloquist dummy or? No. Good, good God, no. Um, with with the track record of this thing, I am going to say uh, that thing's going to stay chained up forever. Um, I bought, at the same time I bought Waldo, a thing called a belly demon. It's carved in wood. It's around four feet high, and it's 350 years old. It was from a belly tribe. And basically, it was placed in front of a hut of the chief of the belly tribe. And the belly demon is much like a sentinel on a church, like a gargoyle. Right. And uh, there's a little drawer at its feet. And, it, and what they would do is they would take and place the nail clippings and the hair of the chief inside that little drawer, close it, and that would imbue the actual uh, statue, this belly demon, with his essence, his energy, so he would know who to uh, keep care of. Well, when I bought that, which was about the same time I got Waldo, I placed my own hair clippings and nail clippings into that drawer so that it would guard me from the problematic little doll that I have, Waldo. <laughs> Good plan. Yeah. You have an insurance policy. All right. In a weird way, yeah. <laughs> uh, sit tight, Scott. We'll uh, come back. More conversation with Vlad Eisengrim, a.k.a. Scott McClelland of Carnival Diablo and the Paranormal Show and Diablo Manor. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right. Welcome back. Scott McClelland stays with us before we get back to that conversation. I just want to uh, remind you about my podcast, 
Conspiracy Unlimited, and new episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you love The Conspiracy Show, you're going to love Conspiracy Unlimited. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, brand new episodes. And um, we are fast approaching uh, 3 million unique downloads since we, we launched uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, it just keeps rolling along. Thanks to you. I appreciate it. If you want to listen and subscribe to Conspiracy Unlimited, two ways. You can just go to strangeplanet.ca. That's the website. And there's a button at the bottom there for the podcast, strangeplanet.ca. Or you can go right to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. So, Scott, you must be excited about uh, Occulticon. That sounds like like just the perfect venue for for everything that you do. You know, it's it's interesting. This is a brand new convention that's based around witchcraft, uh, UFOs, uh, lake monsters, Bigfoot, uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, basically, everything that people uh, are intrigued about in the world of the unknown, and that 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 spans everything, like the world of the unknown. The Occulticon is really interesting because it, 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 it delves into the dark magic. It delves into, uh, of course, psychic ability. It's, it's, it's got some great speakers, including yourself, of course. And uh, people like Steve Santini, who's had his own TV show and also is, uh, you know, he has a huge collection uh, based on the Titanic. And uh, that will all be on show. Plus, I'm sure that he'll have a plethora of stories to tell himself. All the people involved are some of the best people in the industry when it comes to the form of uh, weird, uh, strange, and bizarre things that they know. Like uh, th- each one is is a purveyor of that certain uh, special specialty, I guess you could say. Like uh, a person that knows about UFOs, that is what they know. That is exactly what you're going to go and hear about, and they're going to be able to tell you a lot about it because they actually are the best in the industry to be talking about it. This is not like a uh, just a group of uh, people getting together that just want to chat about strange things. These uh, th- This convention is bringing together some of the uh, most interesting people on the planet to talk about uh the unusual, the bizarre, and the supernatural. And and what a great uh, venue, because uh, for people who don't know, Mythwood Event uh, Grounds, it's like 61 acres. It's, it's like, gorgeous. Yeah, it's camping. It's the highest campground in Ontario and uh, in terms of altitude. And, uh, you know, there's a lake, there's a pond, there's a, uh, he's, uh, Cayman Mythwood has created a, uh, a stone circle uh, there, I guess, for, you know, druid ceremonies and so it's forth. It's truly magical. Mm. And and sadly, um, the Occulticon is going to be performing, uh, like, for that three days, the convention, for the very last time there, because Occultic- uh, the uh, Cayman's uh, Myth- Mythwood yeah. uh, campground is closing at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. So this will be uh, uh, people's last forever. chance. And um, I, I know that he has plans to take the Occulticon uh, somewhere else after that in the in the future. But um, for those that are really interested in having a wonderful experience, uh, they should go to the Mythwood campgrounds this year because this is the last chance they'll have right. to and, actually experience Mythwood. Right, and people can camp there for the full uh, three days, or they could just uh, uh, they could just stay for the day. Uh, September thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. And again, it's occulticon.com. Uh, I wanted to ask you, speaking of the occult, are you, um, are you, uh, uh, I won't say a fan, but uh, are you 
keen on Alistair Crowley? I was going to say Alistair Crowley. Uh, what are my thoughts? Well, um, I, I, I'm a practitioner of the occult, and uh, Alistair uh, was a like a, a very intriguing, uh, eccentric, and charismatic character in the history of uh, uh, the occult uh, sciences. Uh, I um, I've been getting deeper into it. As I've gotten older, uh, originally in writing things like the paranormal show, I was much more interested in the uh, not the, with the pseudoscience of ESP and of telekinesis, which is the movement of objects with the mind and things like that. But now I'm actually uh, much more interested in my own personal life, in the ritual of magic. And so I've been um, actually doing a lot of rituals here at the Diablo Manor when people are not around. Like I'm actually... Um, Every time I have a, a, an audience here, when they leave, I do a, a house cleansing. I actually uh, uh, smudge my, my house, and I go through the whole ritual of uh, cleansing it of any uh, ill energy that may have been brought along with anybody that came through my door, because they're all strangers that are coming into my home. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, Crowley was known as, I think they called him the Beast, and, you know, one of the most notorious people... Uh, one of them in, in history. Do you think he deserved that rap, or was he just sort of sort of playing that role? Well, I think it, uh, he was very charismatic, and he definitely knew uh, what the people wanted to hear and see. And he was he was definitely a bit of a megalomaniac when it came to <laughs> like how he played out his life, uh, much like Salvador Dali. Dali was art. Uh, Crowley was definitely the occult. Um, and uh, I, I, I definitely don't, uh, you know, poo-poo and wrong him for doing that. I, uh, I think that everybody has their own journey, and uh, Crowley's journey had created such a fantastic, uh, interesting history for the man that people are still talking about him, uh, you know, a half a century after he's died. Right, right. Do what that wilt is the whole of the law. Uh, yes. We'll we'll take a time out. We'll come back, and um, I wanted to ask you about Jack the Ripper because, as memory serves, you're a bit of a. I think you're. They call you a, a ripperologist. Yeah. Can we yeah. talk about Jack the Ripper? We can. Excellent. All right. Scott McClellan stays with us. Carnival Diablo, the paranormal show, Diablo Manor. Back with more in a moment. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Scott McClellan stays with us, the man behind Carnival Diablo, Canada's oldest and I guess only uh, traveling circus sideshow. There's nobody else, right, doing this? Uh, not under a big top. There, there are variety show entertainers that sometimes get together and will actually do a uh, a, a small sideshow at a theater. But um, when it comes down to an actual touring circus sideshow, um, believe it or not, not only were we the ones that have been doing it for the past 27 years, but I've looked into it. And historically, uh, before me, there was a period between 1992 and 1968 where there was nobody in Canada doing sideshow. And from 68 to 1920, the only other person doing sideshow was my grandfather. There you go. So historically in Canada, we are the basically the, the sideshow family. That's it. That has kept it going. Sideshow royalty. Yes. 
and, and, and as you mentioned earlier, you, you keep it faithful to sort of the, the 19th century, the Victorian era. What is it about the Victorian era that fascinates you so? Well, this was a time period where science and religion were clashing. And so uh, there was a strong fascination in the spirit world. And that was, of course, the, uh, uh, the advent of spiritualism. And people were very interested in seances, in contacting the dead, speaking to the dead through different devices such as Ouija boards, pendulums, uh, slates, uh, pretty well anything that could make them talk to the dead. And of course, again, their interest not only in speaking to the dead was also just in the dead themselves because there was this new thing called photography where um, suddenly they had this need to take pictures of themselves with their dead relatives before they were interred into the ground. And this was called memento mori. Uh, this type of photography. And it's rather morbid, but it was a piece of history that, you know, was a part of the Victorian time period. And you can still find occasionally in uh, antique stores pictures of dead people with their relatives um, posed in some photo studio in the 19th century. Yeah, they Very prop strange. them up as if they're sitting there, as if they're still alive, but clearly well, they are practically, not. Practically, yes. It's right. very strange. And you mentioned spiritualism. Queen Victoria was also um, secretly very much into this as well, wasn't she? Yes, it was. It was a huge fad um, uh, throughout uh, England and North America, and uh, it, it was astounding. Like uh, people would, uh, you know, go out to uh, see seances. They would go out and uh, partake in uh, wonderful, like performances by people like the Davenport brothers who would do a thing called the spirit cabinet where they would be tied up inside of a uh, a closet-like cabinet on stage which had been checked by the people from the audience and they would manifest spirits and violins would play and plates would uh, fly out uh, out of the cabinet into the air uh, and these people were tied up so there was no physical way for them to have been doing any of this stuff uh, really neat stuff like the uh, the things that they created back then and I extrapolate from that and try and pull that into the world that I'm playing in when I'm on stage. You'll be performing with that, uh, doing something like that at the Paranormal Show at, uh, at uh, Occulticon? Yes, I will. Uh-huh. And will you be doing a seance? Yes. I, uh, I, I end the show with a seance, and uh, it, uh, hopefully there will be some poltergeist activity and other activity. It's a, it's a fascinating look at how a seance is actually produced and performed in front of an audience. Um, I know that there is going to be another seance that will be taking place uh, over the course of that weekend uh, by some mediums, uh, and uh, that will be very interesting also. So there is a lot of really interesting things going on at the Occulticon uh, to keep uh, keep people on their toes and also very interested uh, because it's a, uh, it's, it's a fully immersive experience. And I know that you're also fascinated with Jack the Ripper, and uh, there are, you know, there's a sort of a community of, of people like yourself, and you're called ripperologists. Uh, yes. What you have some artifacts uh, it, uh, that were, that are connected to that case. Yes. Well, when you come to the Diablo Manor, I actually have a part in my show where I reveal these artifacts, and we try and solve some of uh, the Ripper's crimes because he killed five prostitutes in Whitechapel, England. Uh, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and finally Mary Jane Kelly. But um, then he disappeared. And uh, for a year, nobody heard of him. And then after about a year, in the New World they call America, 
At the Chicago World's Fair, over 12 more women were killed by the same modus operandi as Jack the Ripper. And historians believe that Jack maybe had fled the country and still had such an insatiable bloodthirst that he kept on doing what he did best and kept on killing in Chicago during the World's Fair. Wow. And during the course of the evening, I try and solve the rest of the case in Chicago in 1889. Amazing. And I use the artifacts that I've collected. I have actual photographs uh, from, the, uh, from the trial and, 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 and from the archives on Jack the Ripper. And I, um, uh, Annie Chapman, when she was found uh, in Mitre Square in Whitechapel, England, dead, uh, they found clenched in her fist two pennies and one half penny. And I have fortuitously gotten my hands on the two pennies and one half penny that she was holding. Oh, wow. So it's in my collection. Yeah. That's pretty macabre. <laughs> yeah. Now, what do you, um, uh, what do you think? Uh, I think this came out earlier this year in the spring mm-hmm. where they did some genetic analysis on, I think it was a shawl that was found on one of the victims and uh, they did some DNA testing. And now somebody thinks that they've solved the, the case finally and they're pointing to a guy by the name of Aaron Kosminski. He was a 23-year-old Polish barber, and apparently he was a police suspect yeah. at the time. What do you have you been he following that? Uh, yes, I have been. Um, uh, Mr. Kosminski could very well be the Ripper, although um, I like uh, I think that we're never going to really know because, again, uh, although that's where fingers are pointing right now. Uh, that that was a long time ago, so I'm I, I'm not sure if the DNA is uh, really Kosminski's or if uh, see we we don't know because James Maybrick was another man that they were looking at. Walter Sickert was another man they were looking at. Uh, these were uh, Neil Cream. Uh, all of these people were really uh, like many people believed at the time that they could have been the Ripper, and they had even purported to be the Ripper. And uh, there was these uh, letters from Hal, as it were, uh, as they were signed, uh, that were sent to the commissioner. And uh, that alone, uh, some people think that maybe those were uh, fake just to create more of a, uh, uh, a mania attached to uh, what was happening with the Ripper at the time. But other people believe that maybe he was just taunting the police hmm. with these uh, with these crazy ass letters, uh, where he would send a piece of the kidney of one of the victims, uh, you know, in the letter itself. Just really strange things uh, that make you wonder. You know, there was also the the rumor that it was a member of the royal family. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And uh, that I have a hard time with. I, do, I don't know if that's a possibility. It's it's definitely uh, like that would be a shocker. If, if it were true, but um, a person of that high profile, I really don't think could be walking around Whitechapel, England. Whitechapel wasn't a very uh, clean and great place to be in back in the 19th century. It was it was dangerous. It was it, it was the ghettos of London, you know. Uh, and believe it or not, at the same exact time that Jack was doing his killing in Whitechapel. There was an itinerant showman showing John Merrick, the Elephant Man. Oh wow! In 1888, it's true, and so it's it's kind of neat that uh, that was happening at the exact same time. 
It all ties together. Mm-hmm. All right. So again, the paranormal show, and you can, uh, you can see it up close and in person at Occulticon, uh, 2019, September the 14th up in Holstein, Ontario. Beautiful Mythwood campgrounds. Uh, just go to occulticon.com. I'll be speaking there on the 14th as well. Uh, and rumor has it, Scott, we're going to be, bu- uh, we're going to be uh, sharing a cabin. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a great time, a great time. There'll be some ghost stories uh, shared around the campfire, I'm sure. Scott, always a delight. See you soon. Thank you. Scott McClellan, theparanormalshow.net, carnivaldiablo.com, diablomanor.com. My thanks to Owen Wolf and uh, Ryan White. Back next week with um, uh, uh, Nick Bryant, journalist Nick Bryant, about the Jeffrey Epstein case, and uh, Chris Newby on Lyme disease, a biological weapon, mayhaps. All right, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A few minutes remain with Grant Cameron on the line from Manitoba. Renowned ufologist and uh, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Uh, Victor was uh, talking about his conversation with this PR person from uh, the Air Force, and the Air Force's official position, Victor, is that they do not pose a threat, right? To the national security of the United States, yeah. Right. right. What do you think, Grant? Do UFOs pose a threat? No. That's been every agency. They're going to, they're going to play the threat card. That's because if you remember back to the Obama administration, Leslie Kane and John Podesta, campaign manager for Hillary, were playing the game then that the reason we need money to investigate UFOs is a, is a threat to commercial airlines. And I guess everybody in Congress just laughed at them. So they're going to play the threat card. They're going to say, you know, this is a national security issue. Uh, we need $50 billion. And first, they're going to prove that it's for real. So you, you, you're making this move, and you've actually got some moves. I think they're going to get the money. Uh, you mentioned the, the media. You're not looking at the New York Times. You're looking at uh, Tucker Carlson from Fox has, has caught this wind of this whole thing. And is very interested. He's asked Donald Trump about it twice, and then he asked the head of intelligence for the Senate, uh, Warner, uh, because uh, Lou Elizondo went on Fox, and he said, we have crash saucer material, and Eric Davis, minutes later, uh, said, and he's the one that wrote the notes, he said, 1,000% true. Uh, so they made this statement, and, fa- and of course, uh, Carlson asked uh, the head of intelligence for the Senate, uh, is this true? Do we have crash saucer material? And Warner said that's one of the four questions we're trying to get answered. So this may be days away from um, you have a, a you know the head of intelligence for the Senate stand up and say we've got crash saucer material. I mean it could be all game set and match. Hasn't hasn't NARCAP uh, been a major player in allowing pilots to come forward anonymously to to do reports uh, without you know threatening their uh, their careers in in the in the uh, airline industry? That to me has been something that I think the Senate needs to hear about because you know I agree with you that UFOs are not a threat, but they do pose a danger in a situation where you've got an airliner flying at you know thirty five thousand feet and you've got an encounter with a craft of uh, 
unknown origin coming at you. Um, there may be no bad intentions on either one's part, but there is a danger in the sky about this. Now, if the Senate gets a hold of something like that, I mean, how would they play that card? Well, they must have gotten that because that was uh, Hillary Clinton and Podesta and um, Pope and... Um, um, well, who's the other? There's four people working on this whole thing with Leslie Kane. Blumenthal? And they were pushing this thing in the government with the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go anywhere. That's where I think they moved, made the move to say, we're going to do something different. They got this whole thing with the Italian helicopter being downed, you know, sent to the ground and stuff like that. And they're, they're playing more the, the, the real fear card, uh, because Congress, I mean, you gotta have something for them to hand over the money. You, they gotta be convinced that this thing's for real. And then you need something where you're going to walk away with a lot of money that you need for research, and they'll play it up. You know, it could be Chinese, it could be Russian. Um, if, we, if we don't figure it out, the Russians are going to figure it out. They're going to play this card of, of fear, whatever they can get to get the money. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. You know, I'm just thinking someone who is probably the most likely to give this some coverage in mainstream media would be someone like Tucker Carlson. Yeah, Fox he's, News. He's all over it. I mean, he's yeah. really pushing, and he's got a big audience, and he can talk to the president. And uh, this whole thing with the Senate, where uh, I haven't heard what's going to happen, but uh, when you have the head of intelligence uh, for the Senate saying he's going to get an answer whether we got crash saucer material, he's going to face that question again. Did you ask the question? What's the answer? And it's game over. I mean, if if he confirms that we've actually got a craft and bodies. And that was the whole, what the whole alien autopsy thing is about, is not so much about UFOs, because everybody, the, the ATIPs playing the game, well, you know, it's, we don't know what it is, you know, they're playing this whole stupid game. Uh, you get alien autopsy and you get a body on a table, um, then we start, under, start you know, understanding what this is actually all about. This goes way beyond UFOs. This goes to, uh, you know, beings and crafts and... Propulsion systems. playing around and we don't know what this thing is. Yeah. Do you think that Tucker Carlson is uh, purposely scratching the surface of this issue? Or is he been given a mandate to go as deep as he wants? Uh, I, I find that a, a bit of a discrepancy in the way, the way he covers it. He asks really good questions, but it never goes beyond the superficial at, at, at some point. It's the what it really means in terms of propulsion systems and and potential abductions or alien bodies or whatever he he stays with the superficial all the time would that be his mandate or does he well he may be they may be reining him in from from uh, above but you can see that he's he's got a bug i mean he's uh you very rarely do you get a reporter who brings him in. Kimmel used to do that with with his night show, where mm-hmm. everybody that came on, he'd ask him about the UFO thing. Did you ever get briefed? Did you ever look for the documents, this sort of stuff? And I think it's just my impression is he's just very interested in this thing, and he he realizes that if if he breaks his story, it's it's the biggest story of all times, and uh, he's on it. And um, when you can talk to the president of the United States, and you know these his his party is you know he's he's pro Republican and his people are running the, the show, he can ask these questions and realizes that if if at some point it unravels, I mean he's the hero of the whole thing. All right, just uh, give us a, a bit of a briefing on what you'll be talking about on uh, Sunday. September 22nd at the Alien Cosmic Expo. Okay, so I'll go a little bit through these two documents I've talked about, and then there's 26 more pages I'm going to release, uh, which are notes from some top-secret people talking in these meetings in 1985. I'm going to release that. 
and I will talk about the the portal and the uh, port stuff because what happened was uh, the research that's being done at Skinwalker Ranch that everybody's heard about really had nothing to do with UFOs. There were really, really no UFOs there. It was all apportation material, manifestations, portals, this kind of stuff. And this is the whole idea that you can move stuff through walls, uh, you know, um, make stuff appear, reappear. And that was what the ATIPS program basically was, is they were trying to figure out this, this, whole, this whole military aspect of making stuff appear and disappear and going through walls. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I think that's a, a big interest in the government is to try to figure out this whole thing about portals, about moving from one point in space to another, and about being able to make stuff disappear and reappear in other spots. All right. And uh, Victor, you'll be moderating. Tell us, um, are, you, are you moderating a specific panel you'd like to tell us about? Well, actually, the the job that I have is introducing all the speakers and bringing things together and making sure that the clock is working all the time. Excellent. All right. So that's one You're the, the showrunner. Exactly. And uh, when I do do that, I, I get my dibs in every once in a while, as you probably well know that I do. Terrific. Okay. So let me just remind folks, Sunday, September 22nd, from 1.30 to 2.45, uh, Grant Cameron will be uh, speaking. He'll be speaking about these documents, and he'll also uh, touch on new evidence that portals to other worlds exist, the link between consciousness and ET, human contact, and, uh, again, Alien Cosmic Expo, September 21 to the 22nd, Alien Cosmo, aliencosmicexpo.com for tickets and more information. Grant, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate I it. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, Victor? Mm-hmm. Uh, in summing up, the uh, what do you think the the potential impact of uh, this this Navy Admiral document could be? Well, I know one thing for sure. Um, if Grant Cameron is involved in it, along with the work that he did on the Rockefeller Initiative and the way that went, and I, I firmly believe to this day that that's one of the most important documents uh, or, or set of files that he's done. This could be the next biggest thing that Grant has uncovered. And then whenever a person like Richard Dolan gets a hold of something like this, and when he speaks about it, I'm hoping that he'll address the issue at the, at the expo uh, coming up in September, that he'll address this. And I think Richard has a way of even defining it in a, in a more political way uh, than Grant might. Uh, and I think it's going to be uh, something that's it's going to be a, a real shock to people to find out that it's gone to this depth at a corporate level and that the United States government really is not in control of this issue at, at all. You mentioned Richard Dolan. We should point out Richard will be following Grant Cameron on Sunday, September the 22nd from 3 to 4.15. Richard will be speaking about uh, uh, U.S. government false flag operations and uh, UFOs, of course. So I'm sure he will touch on the... Uh, these uh, three documents, Grant Cameron, followed by Richard Dolan. How's that for a lineup? All right. Uh, Victor, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. When we come back, Scott McClelland, proprietor of Canada's oldest traveling circus sideshow, Carnival Diablo. He'll be here to tell us about that, the Diablo Manor, and, of course, the Paranormal Show. Stay it, stay uh, right here on the, uh, on the Conspiracy Show. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. 
A big howdy to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hi to those of you tuning us in on one of our fine affiliate stations across North America. And hey you, streaming us live at zoomeradio.ca and those of you who stream us on YouTube. Just a reminder, no live stream tonight on YouTube. The live stream will resume the second week of September. However, the audio from this broadcast will be up on the YouTube channel within days. And again, the YouTube channel is Strange Planet, which you can access. You can access the YouTube channel and my podcasts uh, and information on this radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It's all found at strangeplanet.ca. Now, just a quick programming note before we get rolling here with Vlad Eisengrim, a.k.a. Scott McClellan. Uh, Coming up next week, journalist Nick Bryant will be here in the first hour to discuss the whole Jeffrey Epstein child sex ring story that is really just shaking uh, not only Washington, uh, D.C., but really the whole world uh, to its core. Who knows how high this will go? You know, we'll get into the uh, the Lolita Express and the Lolita L- Lolita Island and who's involved and implicated, etc. Uh, then, in the second hour, Chris Newby has a new book. It's called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. She'll join me. Uh, now, this book has gained tremendous currency as late uh, of late because a uh, a member of the House of Representatives in Washington cited this book um as sort of his inspiration into wanting to question the Pentagon to hold a hearing and question the Pentagon whether or not as to whether or not they weaponized ticks as a biological weapon something you know many of us have sort of suspected for many many years well now we may we may get a hearing on that, and it's part in uh, in large measure due to Chris Newby's book, Bitten: The Secret History of Lyme Disease. She joins us the second hour uh, next week. All right, let's usher in the master of macabre. Scott McClellan has been creating productions based on the strange and bizarre. He was brought up on his grandfather's carnival, and Scott is preserving the secrets and carrying on the traditions passed down by his famous grandfather, Professor N.P. Luchuk. Scott's productions have been showcased on A&E, TLC, the National Geographic Channel, and CBC. And now, after more than a quarter century of touring with his own circus sideshow, Carnival Diablo, and filling theaters with curious patrons during the paranormal show, Scott has decided to open up his home, the Diablo Manor, for a special evening that embodies everything he loves, the 19th century, the supernatural, strange anomalies, freaks, ghosts, and cryptozoology. A great pleasure to welcome Scott McClellan back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Scott? I'm very well, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And uh, looking forward uh, to meeting you up uh, once again up at Occulticon 2019, which is September 13th, 14th, and 15th. And uh, you're going to be performing The Paranormal Show. Tell us about it. Well, the Paranormal Show is a show based on paranormal activity live on stage. I uh, I basically will be on stage performing different feats that are tests of the supernatural. Psychokinesis, retrocognition, telekinesis, mind reading, uh, all, all of the things that basically people have always questioned about the paranormal 
will not be answered, but will be a part of the evening itself. And uh, the fascinating thing about it is 75% of the show is audience participation. So the audience becomes totally involved and immersed in the world of the supernatural during the performance. And which dates of of the three are you performing? Uh, I am performing, as far as I know, on the 14th, which is the Saturday. Right, right. And I'll be speaking on the 14th. And uh, Victor Vigiani, who just left the studio, he'll be uh, up at Occulticon as well, presenting on on UFOs. And uh, Christian Dicadieu from Paranormal Contractors will also be up there. But there's uh, Steve Santini has uh, an amazing uh, collection of artifacts from the Titanic and other shipwrecks. So uh, Occulticon 2019 happening in... Uh, Holstein, Ontario, which is in Gray County, this beautiful 61-acre, um, it's forested, there's lakes, ponds, uh, plenty of camping and uh, cabins, and uh, it'll be a great time. September 13th, 14th, 15th, you can go to occultacon.com for more information. All right, so uh, let me ask you about uh, living or growing up, really, uh on your grandfather's touring with your grandfather's circus sideshow. How old were you when you ran away and joined the circus? Uh, well, we've got pictures of me at six weeks of age in front of my grandfather's Ferris wheel. But I, uh, I didn't start to apprentice under him until I was 11 years old. And from 11 to 25, I spent every summer uh, learning, uh, I hate to use the word, the tricks of the trade, but how to become a showman. And, uh, and also, uh, basically how to run a show based around the strange and bizarre, which is circus sideshow and, uh, what I'm now doing, the paranormal show, because my grandfather also performed seances live on stage. Wow. What a life. Yeah. What a life growing up and, and spending your summers traveling in a circus sideshow. How did, how did you travel across the country back then? Uh, I usually travel, uh, by train. Uh, mm-hmm. My parents would put a little note in my pocket that says, my name is Scott McClellan, make sure that I get to this uh, destination at this time, and uh, or this hotel. And uh, that was basically uh, the way I traveled for the first uh, five or six years of my uh, life, from 11 to about 16 years of age. At 17, I had my license so I could drive. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your grandfather, Professor N.P. Luchuk. How did he get started? Yeah. Well, uh, my grandfather was... Uh, a person that was really a renaissance man in the industry. He not only could uh, perform on stage things like magic and hypnotism and sideshow feats, but he also was what they called <laughs> historically the brain from the Ukraine because he uh, he was an inventor and a botanist and a chemist. And uh, he invented uh, carnival rides that um, are now being used all over the world, such as the teacup ride at Disneyland. Oh, wow. That's one of his ideas. Um, before he came along, uh, all merry-go-rounds uh, had horses on them that uh, were stationary. And my grandfather, being a uh, an equestrian rider, thought, well, if I was a child and I wanted to be on a horse, I'd want to feel the horse beneath me. So he created the step mechanism that makes the horses go up and down on the merry-go-round. Wow. This guy was brilliant. Uh, so apart from performing, he was actually enhancing the circus and carnival industry constantly. Amazing. What a legacy. Yeah. And uh, your grandmother was part of the show as well, wasn't, wasn't yeah, she? Yes, she was. My grandmother could swallow seven swords at one time. She's in the Sword Swallower <laughs> Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a lineage. 
uh, I, my grandmother may have accidentally swallowed a, a, a darning needle, but that's about <laughs> seven swords all at once. Oh yeah. my gosh. And, um, what is the strangest thing, uh, you know, when your, your grandfather was running the, the sideshow, what was this, yeah. one of the, the, the strangest attractions? Well, it's funny. My mom said to me when she was a little girl, like when she was four and five, and she used to be backstage during grandpa's shows, she used to hate watching the shows because every day her mother would die. Uh, <laughs> my grand, my grandfather performed what is known as Grand Guignol Theater, and uh, that's theater of the blood on stage. Basically, it's a uh, it's morality plays with uh, stage blood and 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 uh, really graphic illusions. My grandfather would use things like uh, uh, the same kind of guillotine that Alice Cooper uses in his stage show, where the head goes into the uh, in, into the hole, and when the blade comes down, the head comes off. Well, Mum used to watch this from the side of the stage, and uh, of course, my grandfather never brought my grandmother back on stage once her head came off. So <laughs> to my mom, Sure. She was killed wow. three times a day. <laughs> so she absolutely abhorred the fact that she had to, do, you know, uh, watch that kind of thing every day because Grandpa had a different way of killing uh, Mom every uh, every day of the week. <laughs> wow. Now, uh, yeah. Carnival Diablo. Know, it's, it's strange. I'm sorry. You asked it. I, I, I answered. <laughs> That's I, all right. He he uh, he. he Showed me when I was uh, when I was eleven years old. He took me to a show where a seventy-five-year-old man was on stage, like an old guy. And uh, this this old guy came on stage. Didn't he was probably in his eighties. Like like he looked like he was very frail. And he asked for a lady's purse from the audience. Now this was nineteen seventy-seven. So understand, a lady's purse back then was the size of a Cadillac. And um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so he took a shark hook and he put it through his unpierced tongue and lifted the lady's purse with a chain attached to the shark hook. Oh. And I was only 11 years old. And this is like the kind of entertainment my grandfather was opening me up to. And at the time, I was not only aghast, but fascinated. And I thought to myself, one day I'm going to do that, too. One day I'm going to put a shark's hook through my tongue. Yes, and now I do. I actually uh, put a shark hook through my unpierced tongue, and I lift 45 pounds of stones in a basket on stage. Wow. So yeah. um, since, you've, since you've purchased uh, Diablo Manor and you've yeah. got a lot of your exhibits, what's the status now of Carnival Diablo? Do you still go out summers with the big tent? Yes, I do. Uh, Carnival Diablo, the strangest show unearthed, uh, tours every summer from May through September. And uh, it's under a big top. I've actually taken uh, time out of my life to purchase a large big top, uh, build a banner line, and do it just like my grandfather did back in the 1920s and 30s. So it's a real throwback. The tent isn't made out of vinyl. It's made out of canvas. The uh, poles are not made of uh, aluminum. They're made out of wood. And the rope is not nylon. It's hemp. So it's like we're going right Right back to the olden days when it comes to the way the show was set up. Oh, God it's, bless it, you. It's a real thrill to be on the road with it. And uh, you don't travel by train anymore, I'm guessing. And you know, and, and um, <laughs> I wish I did. You know, Ringling Brothers used to do that. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't travel by train. I I, I travel by my uh, my own little uh, uh, gas powered machine that you, you, you uh, magically s- just drives around for you know all it's worth. Yeah. Do you do you set up the big tent in the middle of the night just outside of town? <laughs> exactly. And then suddenly it just appears. Right, right. 
It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and some of the uh, some of the attractions you have uh, currently touring, um, what do we call them? Geeks. Uh, well, that depends. A, a geek is a, a person that actually uh, bites the heads off of chickens or snakes. Ah, okay. um, the the only two performers under the big top during the uh, the tour is myself and Visago the Mechanical Marvel. Oh, tell me about the the Mechanical Marvel. <laughs> well, Visago is a 19th century automaton. And uh, he's the grand finale to the show, and he's unveiled at the very end of the uh, program. And when he, when people see him, he's beautiful. He's a, he's a 19th century automaton that reads minds. And although he has been programmed as a clockwork-type robot, like it's an old 19th century robot, for some odd reason, he is capable of knowing what's in the minds of the audience. And it's it's a really great way to end the show because it's whimsical. It's like something that you could only dream about, and it's happening right in front of you. So uh, people can go to carnivaldiablo.com to see uh, you know where you'll be rolling through this summer. Yes, yeah, we've uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to be setting up in a couple weeks in Spencerville on August eighth through the eleventh. Ah, in Mill Park. Right, that's up in the Ottawa Valley, right? That is correct. Terrific. And um, tell me about Carnival Diablo. You uh, you sort of settled in, and uh, I mean, this is your this is your home now. But is this is this place haunted? Oh, you're talking about the Diablo Manor. I'm sorry. What did I say? Yeah, yeah, the Diablo Manor. My apologies. <laughs> yes, the uh, the Diablo Manor. It's. Uh, have you ever heard of the Orange Society? Yes. Yes. Okay. You're a, a fraternity was, like the Masons, right? That is correct. This was one of the very first. Orange Society halls in the region. So the house wasn't just a house. It was actually a place where secret societies would actually gather on a weekly basis. Ooh. Secret passages? Secret passages, yes. Um, uh, Every doorknob has sigils uh, uh, actually carved into it. Every hinge on the doors has sigils carved into it. This place is magic. And I mean, M I G I C K. When I came across it, I had to have the place. Uh, this is one of the most unusual things I've ever seen in my life. Like it's, it, it was built, uh, basically for rituals. Like the master bedroom is where the throne room used to be for the Orange Society. And uh, it's it's a fascinating house. Um, of course, I've augmented it with my collection. So there's mummies and human shrunken heads and uh, two-headed calves and uh, even the, uh, the skeleton of uh, John Merrick himself, the Elephant Man. You have the skeleton of the Elephant Man? He is on display here at the Diablo Manor. Now, understand, it's, uh, it's on loan right now, but I, uh, I'm very proud to actually have that with me. And, man, when you, come, when you come to the Diablo Manor, it begins with a full tour of all the artifacts with the stories, and then from there we have a three-course Victorian meal, and then the evening ends in the parlor with a 75-minute show. The Paranormal Show. Well, no, it's a no. show written specifically ah. for the Diablo Manor, but it's close up and personal. So the Paranormal Show is built for a larger stage. The uh, Diablo Manor show is, uh, well, it's it, it, it's frightening on its uh, on its own rights because of the fact that it's uh, something where instead of having like fifteen hundred people in an audience, I only allow ten. 
Wow, very and exclusive. Every single person is involved. Yeah, every time we do the Diablo Manor, it's only for ten people. Okay, and um, did you tell me once that in order to get there, people are blindfolded? Well, no, they aren't blindfolded, but it's a secret location. So uh-huh. once you purchase your tickets, uh, we get notified uh, through the ticket system that we have. And immediately we send you a, um, a special map that allows you to find your way to the Diablo Manor. Oh, I see. And so it's uh, it, it's impossible to find unless you're actually um, uh, uh, lucky enough to have purchased the ticket. I see, I see. Yeah. And, and so... Uh... How do you how do, how do people reserve if they want to go to the Dia, the Diablo Manor? Well, uh, basically, all you have to do is go to www.diablomanor.com, and all the information is there. And it talks about the uh, the, the food. It talks about the entertainment. It talks about uh, where you can get your tickets. Well, you can just click on on, on ticket sales, and it will take you right to it. Uh, it's it's a great site. Fantastic. Uh, Scott McClelland yeah. is here from the Paranormal Show, Diablo Manor, Carnival Diablo, and the website there is carnivaldiablo.com. And uh, is it theparanormalshow.com? Uh, if you want to re- uh, read and learn more about the Paranormal Show, it's theparanormalshow.net. .net, sorry. All right. Yeah. And uh, Scott will be appearing at Occulticon 2019. Uh, he'll be performing the Paranormal Show on Saturday, September the 14th. And again, occulticon.com is uh, where you go for tickets and more information. All right. I want to—I I know we've talked about this before, but it's one of my favorite all-time stories, and that is Waldo, the homicidal dummy. Um, yeah. We're going to do that, though. We're coming up on a break. Uh, before we, we, uh, we break though, I just want to get a, a bit of a tour of Diablo Manor. Tell me about some of the other strange artifacts. I'd be happy to. The, uh, when you enter the Diablo Manor, one of the first things that I show you is a mummy's head from the British Museum, carbon dated at 1400 BC. Then we move on from there to an unveiling of the actual mermaid that P.T. Barnum showed back in 1873, uh, and it was called the Fiji Mermaid. Uh, this is the same time period that Darwin brought out his book, Origin of Species, and basically Barnum thought it was so funny that he got a taxidermist to uh, take and shave the front of a monkey and uh, sew it onto the back of a sea bass, and he went to the papers and went, ladies and gentlemen, you're part <laughs> of something amazing right now. Come and see... That man came from fish, and he made, in the first year of showing this crazy-ass, like, taxidermy thing, $7.5 million. Oh, cents a person. Then he turned it around the next year, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, you've been part of the world's largest hoax. Come and see what fooled the world. And that next year, he made $8.3 million. Are those in today's dollars, or is that how much he made back then? That's in today's dollars wow. at five cents a person. He was touring this all over the place, and people were just falling all over themselves to go and see it. He was uh, he was an amazing showman. And uh, th- from there, you get to see the elephant man skeleton. There's a uh, shrine to my grandfather's life that you'll get to see. Uh, there are human shrunken heads. There is, uh, oh, my goodness, there's a uh, an actual hand of glory. Now, there's only two in the world. There's one in Whitby Abbey in, uh, in England, and there's the one that my grandfather uh, had in his collection. And uh, so that is one of the last things you see before we move into the dining room and begin a rather beautiful but unusual meal. What's the hand of glory? 
Uh, a hand of glory is basically a hand that's been severed from a criminal that's been hung in the court. And then they imbue the hand with a certain power so that when it is pointed at a locked door, it unlocks it and places everybody beyond the door under a deep trance so the place may be robbed. It's a rather valuable object of certain Oh my gosh. Individuals. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're going to head into a break here. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you about Waldo, the homicidal dummy. If you haven't heard this story before, wait until you do. Back with more of my conversation with Scott, Scott McClellan from Carnival Diablo, the paranormal show, and Diablo Manor right here on The Conspiracy Show. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. This hour, ufologist Victor Vigiani from Zeland Communications is in studio. Joining us from Manitoba via Skype is ufologist Grant Cameron, and both will be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo. That's happening September 21 and 22 at the airport Marriott here in Toronto on Dixon Road. And we'll uh, touch on Grant's upcoming presentation about evidence for portals to other worlds, but We'll also get into something called the Wilson Bombshell Document. Wait till you hear this. It involves a Navy admiral who was denied access to a UFO crash retrieval program. And now a document ha- has confirmed this that has been released online. That conversation in just minutes. In the second hour, the proprietor of Canada's oldest traveling circus sideshow, Carnival Diablo, Scott McClelland, a.k.a. Vlad Eisengrim, will be here with some weird tales, and he'll also tell us about Diablo Manor, which houses many of his strange artifacts, including Waldo, the homicidal dummy. And Scott will be appearing at Occulticon 2019 at the Mythwood Events Campground up in beautiful Gray County. That's happening September 13th, 14th, and 15th and he'll be performing his amazing paranormal show. I will also be there, and as will Victor Vigiani. And um, I'll tell you more about that in the second hour. Uh, my technical producer is Owen Wolf. My editor and live stream producer is Ryan White. Headline, Bombshell Document Confirms Navy Admiral Was Denied Access to UFO Crash Retrieval Program. This comes from a website, Planet X News. Org, and I'll crib here from the, uh, the first paragraph. The transcript of a conversation between a U.S. Navy vice admiral and a leading scientist discussing a failed attempt to gain access to a highly classified program 
involving a crashed ET craft has been recently released online. The conversation took place on October 16th, 2002, and involved the retired director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Vice Admiral Thomas, speaking with Dr. Eric W. Davis, a scientist working on the feasibility of exotic propulsion systems with Earth Tech International, an advanced tech think tank established in Austin, Texas. Here to discuss this and other matters. In studio, Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network, Victor's research and analysis of anomalous serial phenomenon spans well over 30 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalisms, journalism in the field of ET disclosure issues. Victor, welcome. Great. Whoop, let me try that again. There we go. Sorry about that. Oh, just great to be with you again. My goodness, in the big chair you are. <laughs> <laughs> Can't use the buttons properly, but That's here we okay. are. Here we go. Uh, and joining us, as I say, via Skype, uh, Grant Cameron. Grant involved has been involved in ufology uh, going back to 1975 with personal sightings of an object which locally became known as Charlie Red Star. The sightings occurred in Carmen, Manitoba. In the past few years, Cameron has turned his research interests to the involvement and actions of the President of the United States in the UFO problem. He's made 20, over 20 trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. Gentlemen, welcome both. Grant, how are you? Just fine, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your interest. My pleasure. Uh, first of all, let's just square this away. Uh, so the Alien Cosmic Expo. All right. Grant, your presentation takes place when? I'm not even sure. Oh, okay. Well, we'll have that. Well, yeah, you have to look that up. Yeah, I'll be there. And the presentation I'm going to do, you mentioned portals. I may talk a little bit about portals, but basically, I think what I'm going to talk about is the hot subject is uh, documents. They're um, about to release a book called uh, The Alien Documents. And um, you mentioned the one document that has leaked. So that, that seems to be a hot topic. And it's not my favorite thing to talk about, but um, I'll be talking about documents that have leaked and some that are about to be uh, dropped into the field. Okay, and uh, so aliencosmicexpo.com is the website. People can go there September 21 and 22. Just show up for both days, and you'll if you don't catch Grant on the first one, you'll see him on the second one. And Victor, um, mm-hmm. do you want to share any more details about the, the expo before we proceed? Well, it's... Uh it's two days, two full days now. Um, it used to be three, but we decided to go with just the two and concentrate our efforts on uh, moving forward with a lot of the stuff that I know Grant's going to be talking about with respect to documents and how the documents can provide a substructure for whatever movement you want to call it, the disclosure movement, whatever you want whatever appellation you want to give it. But there's just so much documentation out there that it it seems to me that what's happening in the general media right now is that they're they're scurrying around trying to look at sightings and we'll get into the Navy stuff a little bit later. But it's my impression that the documentation that people like Grant uh, susses out of every single square inch of these uh, these archives, they're going to be the ones that will tip the scale in favor of people 
the general public and the media believing that this UFO phenomenon is something, in fact, very, very real, and that the government has been into it for the last 75 years, if not longer. Right. That, for skeptics, you know, that's what they want. Show me the data. Mm-hmm. And okay, so here it is. Documents. What else do you need? Okay, so let's drill down then on uh, Vice Admiral Thomas Wilson and uh, this conversation, a transcript and summary notes of a conversation that took place between these two gentlemen going back to d- October 16, 2002. And let me just give you a little backstory that I um, I first heard about this. Uh, I went down to Washington to interview uh, Dr. Stephen Greer for a TV project. And uh, he, he told me about this um, Vice Admiral uh, Thomas Wilson. I don't know if, at that time if he identified him by name, but I remember the conversation and he said that Wilson got wind of this this special prog- program involving the retrieval of crashed UFOs. It was in corporate hands. He called them, asked to be read into the program, and was told, sorry, you have no need to know. And they not only they hung up on him, but they blocked him from calling further. So, uh, first of all, um, Grant or Victor, either one jump in at any point, who who came into possession of the transcript and summary notes of this conversation, and and um, and and put it online? Can we can we divulge that? I can give the details. Um, what happened was uh, there's a source in um, Australia who uh, knew Edgar Mitchell uh, when they were cleaning out the house with Edgar Mitchell's files, and this happens quite often where. Researchers will get material, uh, they don't talk about it, they put it in a file, um, they intend to do something with it someday and then they die. And the family wasn't really interested in UFOs and um, so this person offered to take, um, we're not sure how much he's got, up to six boxes of material. Some, a lot of it was books, I think. And a friend of mine by the name of James uh, Rigney, who lives, he's an, uh, an architect in Australia, I uh, was friends with this guy. Both these guys are aerospace guys. So the first guy who got all this, these six boxes is not a UFO guy. He has no, no real background in UFOs. He just was an aerospace guy and just happened to say, you know, I'll take these, you know, instead of throwing this stuff out, I'll take it. And so James discovers uh, that he has um, some interesting um, material. He's, he's shown about... Um, um, maybe less than a box of material. He pulls about six inches of uh, documents. He asks, can I photocopy these? He photocopies them. He holds them for about a year. And then last November, uh, we're both at the Starworks USA conference in uh, Laughlin, Nevada, and he gets the idea in the middle of the night just before we're about to leave that he needs to show me this document. He's held it. He's trying to find someone uh, to get this thing public because he's, uh, he's a researcher, but he's not really active. Uh, and has a business and really didn't want to get involved. So he approaches me. I'm about to go out the door. Um, I really don't want to look at it. I say, send it to me. I, I didn't know what he had because you get approached by a lot of people sure. with all sorts of stuff. And he said, I need 10 minutes of your time. I said, okay, fine. So he pulls out this little iPad and he shows me the first page of this document. And I really haven't really read that much of the document. I read the first page. That's all I really needed to read and part of the second page. And what I noticed on the document immediately was uh, a guy's name who's uh, Oak Shannon. And Oak Shannon, I knew who he was. And nobody in the UFO community would know who this guy was. And it, of course, was headed as Dr. Eric Walker, or Dr. Uh, Eric Davis's notes. 
So um, I knew that Eric Davis was friends with uh, Oak Shannon. I knew that Oak Shannon was involved in a series of meetings in 1985, uh, which was called the UFO Working Group. If you remember back to start with John, John Alexander starts this group. Uh, there's about 20 people with top secret SEI clearances. They all get gathered together in a think tank uh, in a skiff in uh, on the East Coast. And they have a series of meetings. And so uh, Eric Davis, whose notes these are, this is this, this document you're talking about, 15-page document. Uh, these are notes that he made of this conversation with Dr. Uh, with Admiral Tom Wilson. So uh, he had provided me with notes from this meeting in 1985 from Oak Shannon. Now, that's how I knew Oak Shannon was. I knew he was an important guy. I knew he, he was friends with Eric Davis. So when I saw Oak Shannon's name... I realized this was not an ordinary document. Nobody would have uh, pulled this thing. And then the second thing I noticed on there was the fact that um, this, this Admiral Wilson was confirming MJ-12 was real. And MJ-12 is the rumored control group that I have stated since 1989 is for real. There's a lot of phony documents about them, but the actual group exists. So when I saw this, I basically looked up at him and I said, where did you get this from? Because it was the most, and I, I've been to 35 archives around the world looking at different things, whether it's presidential stuff or people's files who, uh, you know, people who have died and I come go to go see Stanton's files in September. So that's what I, I basically do for entertainment. I go and try to recover stuff. So I said to him, you know, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Like, where did you get this from? And that's when he said, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell's files. So to give you a background of what happened, and this is, this is, um, pretty sure this is what happened, but what happened was um, a big, Bob Bigelow, who was this billionaire guy in Las Vegas, uh, was a, no, a number of people through the years with high security clearances, with money, uh, have always tried to figure out what the UFO deal was about. And in the late 1990s and the, uh, the first five years of, of the 2000s, uh, Bigelow spent a lot of money in trying to figure out what's going on with the UFO phenomena. He hired, a, brought in a bunch of consultants to uh, meetings, which are called the NIDS meetings, so the National in Institute for Discovery Science. And these people were paid huge money, and they included a lot of people who were known in the 1980s as the Avery. These are high-level military, government, and intelligence people who have run up against the UFO phenomena in their career, and really were trying to find out more. It's like they're trying to gather more material, and they sort of interact with all these other people who have high-level clearances. Sometimes they're called the Cosmic Club, the Invisible College. There's all sorts of names for these guys, and they sort of interact with each other. And Bob Bigelow called all these people in. So basically, Edgar Mitchell was one of the people that was on the board of NIDS. So was um, Eric, Eric Davis was the chief physicist for NIDS. Um, uh, Hal Putoff, who's mentioned in the document, was on NIDS. So you have all these high-level uh, scientific intelligence people. Kit Green, who used to run the weird desk of the CIA, uh, a, a physiologist, was one of the board members. So what happens is um, they're working on a, a whole bunch of different projects. Like they're working on the Skinwalker Ranch. They're working on cattle mutilations. They're working on helicopters. Uh, they're working on the Holloman Air Force Base story. And, of course, they're, they're working on the Santelli film, which is the second document that was that, that uh, I was, was given. But they worked on all these various projects. And, of course, the, the, the one that they had was this uh, Wilson meeting, where in 19... Two, no, 2002. 1996, uh, oh. 1997, uh, Greer goes with Edgar Mitchell and with a guy by the name of Will Miller, uh, Commander Will Miller, 
who was Stephen Greer's military advisor. And um, Will Miller sets up this meeting with uh, Wilson, who's the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he's the J-2. He's the top intelligence guy in the United States. And they give this briefing. It's supposed to be a stand-up briefing that takes place for 45 minutes. And Wilson keeps calling off meetings and keep going, keep going. And they talk about this kind of stuff. And Wilson realizes that he's one of the one of the projects that Stephen Greer is pointing out is a project that he should be in control of. Let me just uh, just jump in here, Grant. Uh, the, when you're talking about these projects, we're talking about crash retrieve UFO crash retrieval projects, uh, th- th- and tied into this whole you know feasibility study of these advanced propulsion systems. Greer knows about these that are going on, and he's trying to – he's basically briefing, as you say, the top intelligence officer in the United States about these programs. Yeah, and the guy's very interested, and he becomes very upset when he finds out he's been cut out of this – out of the loop on this one project. So that's what happens is Ed, Ed, Edgar Mitchell was in the meeting. So uh, all the people on NIDS uh, or the vast – the people who are on the board would all have these meetings. So what happens is Edgar Mitchell – has this uh, report that's given by Doc, uh, uh, Eric Davis. And after that meeting in 1996, um, it's uh, Oak Shannon that sets up the meeting. So he sets up the meeting, and NIDS is in reinvestigating this whole deal about uh, him being denied access and stuff. And that's when they have this meeting in 2001, 2002, whenever it is, in at the behind the EG&G building, which is the company that sort of runs Area 51, they're in Las Vegas. That's where um, Eric Davis was was living at the time, and um, he basically sit in the back of a car for 45 minutes, and they basically discuss UFOs, crash saucer stuff, uh, MJ12, all this kind of stuff. And Eric Davis provides this set of notes on this conversation, provides them to Bob Bigelow uh, for the NIDS, and they discuss it in the, the NIDS meeting. So that's where the document comes from. It's, it's in Edgar Mitchell's file. And there was a second document that, that um, uh, was released, and that was the alien autopsy document, which uh, they had studied the alien autopsy document. And uh, that may be for another show, but right. it's a, a very complex document which i think will end up being ver- verified they're going to verify the fact that there was there was film of a being with the Santilli film wait a second the the alien autopsy subject was discussed between dr eric davis from earth tech international and vice admiral thomas wilson no that was a, that was the second that document. was a second there's, okay there's actually two documents that leaked you're talking about the one the 15 page document right which was Eric Davis's notes in this conversation with the Got Admiral. It. Got it. Then there's a second document, which is 11 pages long, which talks about the Santilli film. This is another document that's a NIDS document. That's a, it's a memo written from Eric Davis to Bob Bigelow, and the discussion is basically about the alien autopsy, and that what happens is that Kit Green, who was the top sort of the UFO guy at the CIA, states he got three briefings. And that in 1987, 88, somewhere in that range, uh, he was shown a film that he said that that is the same alien. I saw that film. And um, so there's all these uh, emails going back and forth, which is 11 pages of emails that all deals with the Santilli film. So there's these two major documents that that leak out, and both are in Edgar Mitchell's files. And then there's a third one that, a lot of the people got into conspiracy theories when these things leaked, because I really didn't say, you know, what my involvement was, and people started having all these crazy theories of where they were coming from. 
So I actually uh, released a third document, which was an email from uh, Bob Bigelow to Edgar Mitchell, basically telling people, this is where you got to look, this is where these documents are coming from, these are legal documents, they're, and they're not government documents, they're, they're private documents, because what uh, Bob Bigelow had actually said in an interview in 2013 is that if a company gets the UFO material, it's proprietary, and the company has the right to have the UFO material. So it's his proprietary information, but when it leaks out, well, then it becomes our material. So that's basically what happened is some of the NIDS material leaked when Edgar Mitchell died. Right. Now, just uh, the the document regarding the, uh, the, the, the Navy admiral who was yeah. denied access. And there was some, you know, talk, well, is this legitimate? Isn't it legitimate? You said, you know, obviously, you know, the, the players involved. But where is... Dr. Eric W. Davis, and, and where is the, uh, the former Vice uh, Admiral, uh, U.S. Navy Vice Admiral Thomas Wilson and all this? Have they spoken about it since um, its release? Er- Eric Davis, and, uh, Richard Dolan picked it up. That's when it went viral. Um, the, the person, what, what happened was I had the document, and because I had dealt with uh, many of the players in the document, and they told me stuff over the years, I had a very hard time dropping the document. So I talked to a bunch of people, and one of them dropped the document on the internet and gave and dropped a docu- uh, copy to uh, to Richard Dolan. Richard Dolan went public and that's when the thing went viral. So he contacted, he's good friends with Hal Putoff, uh, he contacted Hal Putoff and they had a discussion about this document and Hal wrote a, uh, gave him an official statement on behalf of him and uh, Eric Davis because Hal Putoff runs the Institute for Advanced Studies and his chief scientist is uh, Eric Davis. So ah. uh, they put out an official statement, which was a no comment. He said, um, because we have security clearances, we cannot uh, comment on the validity of the document. And the other person, there's a couple other people that have been contacted. Let me, uh, let me just jump in, Grant, because yeah. we've got to take a time out. We'll pick up on that point when we come back. Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, as we discuss this bombshell document confirming a Navy admiral was denied access to UFO crash retrieval, uh, a crash retrieval program. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right. Uh, the Alien Cosmic Expo, September 21-22, and it's just a who's who uh, from the world of ufology. Uh, Paula Harris, uh, Paul Hillier, Travis Walton, Leslie Mitchell-Clark, and Wes Roberts, who will be on this program uh, next month. And who do we have? Oh. Um, U.S. Marine Captain Randy Kramer and Grant Cameron, of course, who joins us uh, on Skype. And he is speaking Sunday, September the 22nd from 1.30 to 2.45. And uh, he joins us along with Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. And you can go to uh, aliencosmicexpo.com for more information. It's happening at the uh, the beautiful Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto, September 21-22. Okay, so um, we were talking about the uh, this bombshell document confirming a Navy admiral was denied access to UFO crash retrieval programs. Uh, Victor, jump in with a question. Here. Yeah, I, just, I wanted to run something by you, Grant. It's, uh, it seems to me that there's... The revelation of all of this is is one thing, and it, it's obvious that uh, Edgar was, Edgar Mitchell was involved, and so was Steve Greer, and and you mentioned uh, you know Richard Dolan, and once it's reached the the, the I guess the peak that it's at right now, the point that it's at right now, what does this all really mean in terms of 
corporate entities having control over the examination of exotic propulsion systems or, or you know, or crash retrieval programs versus the government doing the same thing. Is it sort of the government in charge to begin with and they dole the stuff out like they did in, in Roswell or is it the other way around that the corporations today have complete control of this stuff and they can go tell anybody, chief of staff or rear admiral, to go fly a kite uh, it, once they ask questions. Is it, what's the chicken or the egg? What's, what's going on? Yeah, well, what this has sort of revealed is the fact that um, people are starting to learn that uh, basically the government is contracted out. Everything's contracted. I mean, the food service for the for the military, everything's contracted. The government really doesn't run anything, and that's what people always think the government's running it, and yet everything that the government does is, is contracted out. They're just sort of managing it. On the other hand, all, all the security clearances are uh, go through the executive office of the president. So even if you're in a... Um, a um, sort of a, an industry type thing or a military industrial complex, you still have to have a security clearance which goes through the executive office of the president. So you, you're supposed to have this sort of a balancing act. And what I would say is that other than the president, anybody can be cut out of the loop because the president is the only one that, that has constitutionally access to everything. So you could be, a, you know, Secretary of Defense or Joint Chiefs of Staff or something. Uh, and you could be cut out of the loop. But what this is showing is uh, this is how stuff is controlled, and the, you don't have the problems with uh, secrecy, that FOIA material. In fact, I, I'm doing a, an inter, uh, a, a lecture. It's going to be online. It's going to talk about uh, UFO um, videos. And I'm starting to come into the understanding that UFO videos, uh, none of them are classified. Uh, there and the problem with the classification is once you put something top secret on it, then you have this 25-year rule, and uh, you have people handling this stuff, and it'll eventually make its way out. If you have it in the private industry, then you don't have the FOIA problems, you don't have all that kind of stuff. It's it's like Bigelow talked about; it's proprietary information, and you can basically just run it uh, in total secrecy and out of the view of of Congress and this sort of stuff. So this has sort of opened it up. The problem with the document is, like everything else in ufology, it's like the 24-hour, 24-7 news cycle that the UFO community is almost like the, the news world in that the story, because they make all these new comments. Everybody's, nobody's denied it, but everybody's making these no comments, and they know that eventually the story's going to fade away and everybody's going to go on to UFO sightings or the next video or, or something like that. And that's basically uh, the game they're playing, is you just wait everybody out and the story will fade away. Uh, so it's kind of a sad situation in terms of um, getting the information. Is it's not really in government hands? I don't think it's it's this um, government or this proprietary uh, uh, situation where people who have no real right, uh, no real um, need to, to release it, are, are handling the material. Let me just uh, crib here again from uh, this news story, planetxnews.org, just to give people some context here. So we're talking about this um, Navy Rear Admiral, or Vice Admiral, sorry, uh, Thomas Wilson. He was at, at the time, he was a Rear Admiral, upper class, Deputy Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Vice Director for Intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, when he found out about this UFO crash retrieval program from uh, Greer and Mitchell and others, uh, he inquired into the program's existence, and he had to do this through a body created uh, for special access programs. So he uh, he learned it. the program involved a corporate research and development effort involving a retrieved extraterrestrial craft. 
but again, when he called and asked to be what they call read in to the program, the person on the other line said, I'm sorry, Rear Admiral, uh, you know, head of defense intelligence for the United States of America. This is none of your business. Click. Yeah. And they say the uh, Greer, I think, at one point stated that um, he had been told that the only reason they have even talked to him at all, uh, he was talking to the lawyers, was they wanted to find out where he'd found it out. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have talked to him at all. And once they found out where he had gotten this, and uh, that's when they sort of shut him off. And that's the whole the whole issue is that um, the only person that might know what it what the deal is is the president of the United States. Now, everybody else is on a need to know basis. That because you're head of intelligence doesn't mean that you're there to run crash retrieval programs. You know, it's, it's but kind doesn't of that, a, yeah, doesn't a that, bizarre thing. The whole but the whole government is run that way. Okay. I mean, the vast majority of the of the government is contracted out, and it, it falls under the same rules. But doesn't it call to, into into question everything that the that the cabinet would do or be saying? They, they're sitting around, uh, you know, in the in the room with all of these uh, the admirals and all the people, the defense people, the secretaries of defense, and everything, and they're all sitting around this table. And are they twiddling their thumbs with this stuff? And knowing that the corporations have a rap on this, or do they, or are they afraid to ask questions about it, uh, for fear it might be leaked that they're talking about this in cabinet? Like, who's really in control here, uh, Grant? I mean, it's just a, it's an absolute anomaly and surprise. It's shocking that someone of that position can be hung up on by a corporate entity to say, no, it's none of your business. It just completely baffles me as to how that can happen. Or, or, or I, I understood that he was even demoted. I mean, this is the thing is that, um, if you step out of line in in these kind of positions, um, it's you play the game by the rules or you leave. I mean, it's uh, the the rules have been set up to pr- provide the the sort of the, um, the the security for the program, and yet when I just saw an email from Robert Collins tonight, and this Eric Davis, the guy who produced these notes, has repeated this, and I've heard this numerous times in all the documents I've seen. Uh, in private collections all seem to indicate the same thing, that yes, we have um, crash saucer material, but they have no idea what's going on. They, that's all they really don't. They, they don't they, they're not getting anywhere. And if you heard the story with Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar said the reason is because it's so highly compartmentalized that you, that you can't get anywhere. So they've, they've got the material. Eric Davis said that they had the material uh, in 1989 and they shut the program down because they couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't figure out how these things worked. And um, that uh, every seven or eight years, they'll revive the program and see if they can figure out something. But the technology is so far ahead of us that it, they, they, they can't figure out anything. So then we have this, uh, this advanced aerial threat identification program. Uh, so there we've got one part of the Pentagon running around trying to figure out what are these things? How much of a threat do they, they pose? Meanwhile... We have in the in court in the corporate world. They have the the crash material. Did, does one not know what the other is doing? Yeah, exactly. The only people that's the thing. If if MJ twelve is real, and I believe they were real, these are the the control group, the twelve guys or whatever that sort of oversee this this whole program from nineteen forty seven on. They really don't care how many programs are below. So what you what you do is. So ATIP, so people always say, well, uh, Lou Elizondo ran the UFO program for the U.S. government. No, he ran a UFO program for the U.S. government. There may be 50 different programs, and all you need, if you're at the top of the, if you're an MJ-12 in this control group, all you need is one person inside 
one of those programs to feed you the material. You don't need to expose your program. So all these people are running around thinking they're doing um, the, the program, they're doing the investigation. Because if you take a look at the ATIP stuff, they basically just had Navy stuff. That's all they were doing. They, they have no reports from the Air Force. It's all this Navy stuff. And so you have all these different programs, and they don't care. There's a $735 billion defense budget. Who cares if we've got 50 UFO programs, as long as it's all one person at the top is, is gathering the material, and everybody thinks they're running the program, and it's all these various programs all doing their own thing. And that's what's happening, I believe, with ATIP, is that ATIP wants money in the, in the public sector, so uh, uh, Jim Semivan had actually made a statement, you know, don't mess with the money, this idea that they're giving these briefings to, to Senate. And so if you're in the black world, you sort of make a deal, give us some material from the black world. Uh, we prove that UFOs exist. Then we go into Congress. Then we get it as a national security issue. And we get some money in the white world so we can do some research on this to try to sort of expand the uh, – the research that's going in there, and we won't expose the black program, and that's how this material is coming out. Is you have these videos that are leaking from the black world to help provide more money. So they don't really care. Another UFO program in the white world, who cares? It'll help us along as long as they don't have control of the whole program. And that's the, that's the weird part of the whole thing, is that I, I think clearly there could be dozens of UFO programs in the, in the government and one or two people who understand how they all go together and people just feeding material and you don't even know who you're working for. And I've heard that before in the UFO community that people say, I think I'm working on a UFO program, but I really don't know where it's going or whatever. I just have my little job to do. And that's the way it works. Because I worked at a university. I, I had the keys to the president's office, eight vice president's offices, human resources, payroll, but I didn't know what was going on. I mean, the people think that because you're in the government, you know what's going on. You just do your little job and it all funnels up to um, one agency up at the top, and you could have 12 guys who know how it works, and Congress is cut out, and they really don't care because um, they, you know, they've got control of it, and um, nobody's going to force their hand because they, they'll play this national security game, is that the more people you tell, the more it's going to leak, and the more, the, the more trouble it is that it's so high in national security that we have to keep it from even Congress people. All right, we're going to take a time out and we will uh, come back more with Grant Cameron talking about this uh, Navy bombshell document, but we can move on to other matters as well. Uh, maybe we can touch on your uh, your upcoming presentation. We'll touch on portals to other worlds. Victor Vigiani stays with us in studio from Zealand News Network. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, we are back. Uh, Victor Vigiani, you want to weigh in with a, a question? Yeah, here? I just I, I want to run something by Grant. Uh, about three and a half weeks ago, Grant, I had a long conversation with the Public Relations Department of the United States Air Force. Uh-huh. And um, it was about a 25-minute conversation, but I kept on asking the same question over and over again. And uh, it was in the 
I guess the contrast between what the Air Force has on its information page regarding the, the UFO phenomenon not being a, a national security threat, and they, that's all they will say about it. But their counterpart in the Navy has gone out of their way, as you well know, for decades to be sort of the, the kingpin within the military uh, with respect to the UFO issue. And I asked them that question. I said, do you realize what the United States Navy has been putting out um, by way of videos and, and, and statements in terms of their pilots and allowing pilots to actually, um, you know, give testimony and, and record their findings about what they're seeing in the air. And they say, we know nothing about that. So is this the same sort of, um, contradiction that's occurring between these corporate entities and, you know, the defense department or, uh, the defense intelligence department? Is, is it the same sort of the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing? And I guess the other question is, is there anybody who really knows what's going on? <laughs> Good question. Well, you're talking to a, a public affairs guy who basically just gets a piece of paper and official statement on this and that. One of the things people have to realize is that when the UFO situation started, um, there was no Air Force. The Navy ran it. The right. Navy in 1946, early 1947, had all the research money for um, military. And it's the old deal is when, when you get a, a military thing, just because somebody new comes along the block, you're not going to give up your part of the pie. And so from what I've been told, and the Canadians were told this, Wilbur Smith, I asked the Wilbur Smith people who the, ran the Canadian government program in the 1950s, I said, who was Wilbur dealing with in the United States? And they said, the Navy. And um, they told me that the Navy was the key. Uh, uh, Bob Lazar said the Navy was the key. Um, and the whole deal is that the U.S. Air Force may be cut out. It may be the Navy that's running the whole the whole program, and they've been running it since 1946. And it's it's they, they like that because everybody thinks it's going to be an Air Force project. And uh, I heard it was it was Navy. So yeah, you may have the Air Force completely cut out. I would say Navy. And the other thing I was told definitely was um, defense intelligence is part. So you would think it, it's, um, you know, the individual uh, agencies like Air Force, whatever, but they just send their material up. The, mm-hmm. the job of the Air Force is to protect the, the um, airspace, and the job of Navy and uh, Defense Intelligence is to gather material that's uh, of defense interest. And the CIA, I believe, is there to manipulate the material and to make the disclosures. And you've got to keep that in mind, is that they are disclosing. I don't care what anybody is saying. They're doing a slow leak. I've said this since 1989. Now more people are coming on board to agree with me that, yes, they are doing a slow leak. They're releasing this material. So they're not – because if they wanted to cover up, they would they would just shut up like the Canadians and not talk about it, and you wouldn't know what's going mm-hmm. on. And if they wanted to reveal it, they would stand the president up and tell you what's going on. So they're not doing a cover-up or disclosure. They're doing something in between. They're doing this sort of a gradual fictionalize the whole thing, put it in Hollywood, uh, and and play it out that way. And what I'm trying to do as much as I can is do a nonfiction disclosure where if I get documents like I got these three documents, you just put them out and say, here's the documents, read the documents and make, make up your own mind as to what's going on and just make sure the documents are legitimate. So, uh, yeah, the Air Force may be cut out. Um, you, you see over and over again that they really don't play that part, a uh, bigger role. Uh, I think the, um, you're going to have Navy, uh, Navy and Defense Intelligence and some aspects of the Air Force may be involved in something, but um, that's what you see with the ATIP thing. Grant, right. how, these three documents that you mentioned, we've been talking about the, the Navy Admiral who has yeah. declined access to this program. But you mentioned the alien autopsy. 
what are the odds that they, these three documents or one of these three documents could get the New York Times treatment? And how big no. would that be? No, uh, they, they've, they've, they've been um, sort of approached. There was ABC, New, ABC Australia actually did a major story. They did a clear piece. Uh, they apparently talked to Wilson. Uh, they talked to Dolan. They talked to James Rigney, who had released it. They spent a lot of time on it. The, the thing was ready to go. And then at the very last minute, um, I was told it was killed at a very high level. And they said, we cannot verify it. And they killed the story. So you, this is a major uh, agency that was, was going to do the document. Uh, the problem with the New York Times and all these sort of things, the, it's not that they're, um, they're bad reporters. It's the fact that the reporters I've dealt with, it's always the same thing. It's like it's a 24-7 news cycle. So unless it's like the Watergate, you're not going to put reporters on this thing. Uh, you know, I know that the it's a very steep learning curve, the UFO thing. You can't just walk into the UFO thing and figure it out in, in 24 hours. And the reporter will do one story, and tomorrow he's going to do a story on dogs, and the day after he's going to do a story on this. And he's got all these different things, and you really don't have anybody in the, in the news uh, loop that has been given the time to uh, absorb all this stuff, put it all together, and right, that it's this twenty-four hour news cycle. Got it. That's Grant, I got a, I got a break here. Yep. Uh, maybe you know, but certain people have access to the New York Times. Leslie Kane, maybe uh, I don't know, but um, boy, oh boy, this could be even bigger than the A-tip story. I think if it got out. All right, one final segment with uh, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani in studio, back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.